How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. 70% of Americans recognize climate change as real. 54% say its effects have already begun. That's according to an April poll by the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank. But prospects for a comprehensive national plan to move America from brown to green energy remain grim given the current political stalemate in the nation's capital. The story in state capitals is more promising. 29 states have goals for generating electricity from renewable sources, though many are considering relaxing those efforts. States are also leading the way in dealing with severe weather. Rising seas, fierce forest fires, searing droughts, and historic floods are hitting just about every state in the country. Over the next hour, we'll look at what states and the country can do to reduce carbon pollution while also preparing for climate impacts that scientists say are coming our way. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us two former governors whose states have confronted severe weather head-on. Bill Ritter Jr. was Democratic governor of Colorado from 2007 to 2011. He's currently director of the Center for a New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. Christine Todd Whitman served as the first woman governor of New Jersey from 1994 to 2001. She was a member of President George W. Bush's cabinet as administrator of the U.S. EPA, from 2001 until 2003. She's currently head of the Whitman Strategy Group, a business consulting firm. Please welcome them to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Thank you both for uh, coming. Uh, Governor Whitman, let's begin with you. And can you tell us where you were when Hurricane Superstorm Sandy hit New Jersey and how that affected you? I was home on the farm. Um, my husband has a way of disappearing for major events like this, so he wasn't around. But uh, we had a lot of warning. However, we don't live anywhere near the shore. We are in central western Jersey on a farm. And when it hit, I can, it, was, it was really inter- the most interesting thing to me. The day before, walking in the woods, there wasn't a sound to be heard, not a bird, nothing. It was dead quiet. And it was eerie. You noticed it right away. But when the storm hit, we... Being as far away from the shore, we still lost over 100 trees. We had to replace about half the barn roof, and we were off the grid for some 12 days. I, I say it that way because we have a generator, so I was able to provide uh, warm meals and showers for a lot of the, the neighbors and relatives for quite some time. But it was uh, it was really impressive when you uh, see what happened as far away as we were, and there were many parts of that inland part because we are heavily forested that were off without power and off the grid for two weeks or even better. And uh, it, it was very expensive and a lot of hardship on people, not to mention what happened along the uh, shore. And then, of course, Staten Island in New York uh, is a, a community that still has a long way to go to come back. It was, it was major. It was major. And we'll get into more of the, the implications of Sandy and the costs and rebuilding, et cetera. Governor Ritter, uh, seems like Colorado's on fire a lot lately. Every time we look in the news, how has the, fi- the forest fires affected you and, and your state? Well, uh, they've affected the state a lot more than me personally. We had two major fires last year. I had one serious fire when I was governor, a couple of tornadoes. Uh, but really last year, two significant fires, one which was a record breaker in terms of homes lost. And then we turned around this year, in fact this month, and broke that record. 369 homes were lost in this most recent fire. Um, so there are huge implications. You lose the home, certainly, and that's uh, economically devastating to the community. It's personally devastating to the families. And you lose that infrastructure as well. And so the counties and the municipalities are, are out. And um, the insurance industry has to really evaluate uh, the loss, and but also... Uh, reevaluate the risk based upon two years in a row of serious, serious fires, drought conditions in this part of the state, uh, four million acres of pine beetle kill, very much related to drought and dryness, and I would say climate change. 
are aspen, which aren't impacted by the pine beetle. There's probably a 15% kill rate from a fungus there that still has everything to do with climate change and with just being vulnerable uh, because of the dry weather, the drought conditions, the longer uh, seasons for things like the pine beetle now has two life cycles in one season where it used to have one. So there's a variety of ways of thinking about this. Actually, none of the areas that have been victimized by this, these forest fires are, are serious pine beetle areas. One, one of the fires got into some pine beetle. It didn't burn faster than the rest, but we've got a lot of pine beetle kill that's a part of this as well. So it's a combination of drought, dry conditions, a longer uh, dry and warm seasons that really are impacting us in a pretty serious way where fires are concerned. And there's been uh, droughts. 2012 was the hottest year on record. There's been floods in some areas. How is this affecting the national political debate or the public awareness, Governor Whitman? Not enough. I mean, that's that, to my mind, is what's so frustrating because you see this happening. The, the insurance companies called last year Anis Horribles because of what they had to put out. And that was before, I mean, after they had to put it out for major hurricane and other major storms. We're seeing the 100-year flood every two or three years now. And so it is, even for people who want to argue over, is it climate change or do humans have an impact on it, at least they've got to start thinking about, well, something is happening and we've got to start preparing for it because part of what drives up the cost of the forest fires and of things like the floods uh, and the superstorm Sandy is the fact that we're building in places where we haven't built before, particularly in, in states like Colorado in the West, but also along the shore we're rebuilding in communities. They've been there for a long time. I understand how difficult it is to take on this issue, but we're going to have to look at should we be rebuilding in some of the places that we're rebuilding, and if so, do we do it in a different way? And uh, that is something we're seeing the towns start to take on. If, if the local people get it, and that's why the states are the laboratories of democracy, because governors have to deliver, and... We see it happening and we have to pay for it. And so the governors tend to, to step up where the federal government doesn't and say, this is how we're going to address this issue. Well, let's talk about the Jersey Shore. Is rebuilding happening in places that it shouldn't? And if not, then what about a person who loses some property? Do they then get paid well, by the, the government? For right now, the governor is looking at buying out a whole bunch of homes in places where he doesn't think redevelopment should take place. And, of course, FEMA just came out with their maps. He'd adopted their maps before they were finalized. And what's interesting is the governor adopted the FEMA maps when they were just proposals. FEMA came out with the finalized maps earlier this week, and they took a number of areas out of the flood-prone um, designation. But people had already started to rebuild based on uh, what the governor had said, so they put them up on stilts. A number of the homeowners who were interviewed saying, did you regret having gone ahead and putting them up on stilts when now you find you didn't need to? And they were all saying, no, no, we get it. We get it that this might happen. Governor Ritter, are people building in places in Colorado where homes, you know, in fire zones where maybe homes shouldn't be built? I think Governor Whitman alluded to this, and the answer is yes. Uh, we have for a long time, and part of it is that's it's attractive to develop and, and really to buy property and sizable estates even in places that are forested. It really increases the aesthetic value. It's, it's fascinating. You know, one of the things you do as a governor is you fly over these areas and you you, you look at where tornadoes, you know, kind of surgically wiped out a half-mile swath or where a forest fire has happened, and you can see how the development is in and around um, forested areas in a very significant way. And, and, and a lot of that development was at a time where there wasn't sort of this concern about drought or the concern at the level that there is now, um, and uh, less of a sense about these really super fires. We're talking about Superstorm Sandy, but uh, there was just something that was done on another national radio program where the climatologist from Colorado was talking about his conversations with firefighters who were fighting these from the air saying, these fires are different because of this uh, this this, uh, this swath of fire at the 1,000-foot level. I mean, like flames lapping up at 1,000 foot across. And this is about climate, and this is about you know drought. And people buying homes 20 years ago weren't thinking about that, and now some of that's coming home to roost. And, and, and so what we have to do is going forward have plans that are like they're doing in New Jersey that are adaptation plans or mitigation plans, ways to think about building codes, ways to think about clearing spaces. I just had a good conversation with our present governor, Governor Hickenlooper, on Saturday, and we talked a little bit about his notion that, that places that actually have done clear-cutting were saved where others that had not burnt in the same neighborhoods. 
No, it's interesting. In the, in the Netherlands, well, in the Netherlands, where so much of the land is under sea level, they now have developed floating homes. They're building floating homes, which people are apparently think is a great idea, and I can see it. But it, it, different states, different countries are going to adapt in different ways, but there are a whole lot of innovative things that can happen, whether it's clear-cutting or building up on stilts or building floating homes. Uh, when I say clear-cutting, I mean chopping down the entire forest, but uh, cutting uh, a firewall around your border that takes trees out so that you don't have pines that can, are going to burn that are five or ten feet away from a house. We actually put money together as, uh, when I was governor, did a variety of things legislatively, even in the downturn, where we were devoting money to communities sponsoring sort of that kind of a program, going out and looking at houses that were a fire hazard that were built up against a forest and saying, you need to remove this much forest from around your property in order to protect your home and your garage. And really, part of what you're talking about is elected officials going to citizens and voters and saying, your costs are going to go up. You're going to either pay more for insurance or somehow the government's going to have taxes to, to pay to to take care of these things that we've created, these risks that we've created. Is that fair to say? I think the public is beginning to understand that. I mean, we all pay for the rebuilding, whether it's in New Jersey or Colorado or Oklahoma. It, it, it affects and impacts all of us because these costs are so massive that no locality, no state can do it all themselves. And you do look, this is one of the roles of the federal government. When you have a crisis, when people are devastated, that's one of the roles, so step in and, and help, but guess whose money that is? That's all of our money, so we should want to. We have a vested interest in trying to be proactive in limiting and reducing those costs. Again, if you want to just skip the whole discussion of whether it's climate change or not, just say we know something is happening, and let's, guess what? We better take some steps, the best, do the best we can to be proactive in reducing those costs and the impacts. We pay for it during and we pay for it after. You know, it's it's county government that's involved at the very first level. Mm-hmm. And then they call in the state. The state looks and sees if they have the, re, the resources to manage the response. Then they call in. The, the governor calls in the federal government and asks the federal government to become involved in that. And that's all taxpayer dollars mm-hmm. that are paying for that. And then if insurance companies aren't elevating the risk because someone's living in a forest or living on the coast, um, they don't elevate the, the, the sort of premium for doing that, we wind up paying because we're part of the same risk pool. Bill Ritter is former governor of Colorado. Other guests at the Commonwealth Club today is Christine Todd Whitman, former New Jersey governor. Uh, at some point, scientists say that, that Superstorm Sandy is not the new normal, that there will be more, bigger, extreme, so there's, there's more of this to come. At what point can the federal government no longer be uh, bailout states? You know, at some point, there's a real financial risk there where Uncle Sam runs out of money. Governor Whitman? Uncle Sam is out of money. I mean, we're printing money every day, and we have a federal deficit that we're going out of sight. Uh, so we are already in that position. I mean, we do have to start looking at our priorities again and assessing where it is we'd want to spend money, what are the things for which the federal government is responsible, what's going to fall solely on the states, and what's going to be up to the individual uh, and local government and the individual. But uh, as far as when do we run out of money, we're there. We're there. In a lot of states, I mean, for instance, New Jersey, we had a lot, in the East Coast, we had a lot of snow, a lot of wet weather. And many of the municipalities in the state blew through their snow removal budgets, mostly proactively, because it wasn't so much snow, but you'd have ice conditions, and they were out early salting, and so they, they blew through those. Then when they have Superstorm Standy, and they've got to respond to that, and then who knows what else we're going to have. And we've already had the last week, we had six inches of rain in three days last week, uh, we're having flooding, serious flooding occurring, at the opposite of what you're getting in, in Colorado. But, um, you know, those budgets are, are done. Uh, they're having to look to come back to the taxpayer and say, okay, it's the only way we get money to be able to pay for these things. So we're putting it on our kids' credit card. Yep. <laughs> Governor Ritter? Well, that's right. And I think uh, Governor Whitman, as she said, the states have, you know, more limited budgets. And so states actually... By and large, can't borrow money. We had to balance the budget in Colorado, and so if that part of the money ran out, you were borrowing from Peter to pay Paul um, if it was something having to do with even emergency management in some situations. But responding to disasters, a disaster response, uh, you have a limited amount of budget. You rely on the federal government for that. But if your state responsibility goes over and above what you have available, then you might be carving out, you know, something from your higher ed budget or from your K through 12 budget or from your uh, health care budget. And 
is not a good place to be, right? But that's the thing, I think, the place we find ourselves in is increasingly states are finding themselves in a position of not being able to even provide the kind of state money they once did to this. Yeah, certainly the, the cost of fighting fires has hit California, more firefighters, et cetera. And, and responding to these uh, disasters is becoming a, a bigger job of governors. I'd like to get a response from you both on recent disasters and how you think chief executives of other states have done in terms of uh, responding to you what they're... The you have the fire. That was I, 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 you know, I, I'm, a, I'm close to our governor, and he's, I think he does a really good job of responding Go, to this. Governor Hickenlooper. Yeah, Governor Hickenlooper. We... You know, when you show up at a disaster, and whether for us it was a tornado or a, um, a serious forest fire, there was another incident where there was some loss of life, and it was a place that I went to. Uh, you as a governor are kind of the crisis manager in a sense. You're put in charge of the incident. There's, there's all sorts of incident command and crisis command on the ground, but they still look to you in a sense as the leader, the person coming in. And so uh, it does have give you an opportunity really to be gubernatorial to lead. Uh, it's different than being in the middle of the Capitol and fighting with legislators who want to, you know, um, be on the front page of the paper saying something awful about you. This is a play. This is a chance. And now it's a tragedy. And so I'm not. I'm not making light of that. But um, I think people do. They they form some impressions about their leadership based upon how you respond in these times of crisis. I think Governor Hickenlooper's done a very good job of doing that over. A couple of years, uh, those forest fires last year were just awful. This added on to it uh, is really devastating to an entire community in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Governor Whitman, how did Governor Christie handle Sandy? Well, uh, Governor is right. It, it is the it, it's a time when you are gubernatorial above the partisan politics because you're dealing with people, which you are should be all the time, and it should be more than about partisan politics. But anyway, and it's been fascinating to me because this is where Governor Christie has gotten so much criticism from the far right of the Republican Party because he acted like a governor. I mean, first of all, he was very very good about the whole storm. He was out ahead of it. He was telling people to get the using Jersey language get blank off the beach and don't be stupid about it. And when they said to evacuate, to evacuate. So he was out proactively because we knew the storm was coming. He was out proactively telling people what they should do, setting up the emergency response. He was right there when it occurred. And then, of course, where he got all this criticism was when the president came in and he welcomed him. Well, you know, if you've just had a major storm that has created tens of billions of dollars worth of damage and killed some people and hurt a lot, devastated a lot of people in communities. I mean, man, Loki, when you see a house that's been moved entirely in the middle of a highway, into the middle of a highway on a bridge, um, you know you've seen some pretty significant damage. And the president had been on the phone with him right away, offered all the assistance that he could, and he holds the key to the kingdom as far as the checkbook, that he has the pen for the checkbook. You're not going to walk away from him. And, and I've talked to Governor Christie about this. He said, and also, you know, I was brought up with the president of the United States you show deference to that office. Um, that's the way we were brought up. It's the president. You can not like the politics, like the politics, whatever, but you respect the office. And that's what he acted like. And that's why I believe his popularity is so high in New Jersey and nationwide. In, except for this few group of people who control a lot of the rhetoric within my party, um, he is very well respected for having done exactly that, of having acted like a governor and reaching out. Christine Todd Whitman is former governor of New Jersey. Our other guest today at the Commonwealth Club is Bill Ritter, former governor of Colorado. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about your party. There are a lot in your party who don't recognize climate science or the climate reality. And uh, do they say one thing publicly and different things privately? Or Well, I'm sure some of them do. Unfortunately, a lot of them say things publicly that are pretty bad. I mean... For instance, and, and this to me epitomizes what I think is wrong with Washington on every subject area. Um, everything has gotten so divisive. But after Superstorm Sandy, uh, your senator, Senator Boxer, said that this probably was related to climate change. I don't know exactly what language she used or what how she how she qualified it. But you know, you can attack her on the science. You can question the conclusion that she drew. But Jim Inhofe. Senator from Oklahoma stood up and said that was immoral. Actually, it wasn't about Sandy. Excuse me. It was about the Oklahoma tornadoes. And he stood up and said it was immoral to have said that. That's not about morality. This is about fact. It's about science. It's about devastation, not about morality. But he made this into a moral issue. And once you do that, you can't find common ground because if what my position is moral, 
and you differ from me, then you're immoral. Right. And you don't compromise on morality. You you can find consensus on a lot of things, but morality sets the bar up to a point where there's little you can do about it. And while I know there are a number of Republicans who, of course, they understand climate change and they know we need to do some things, allow themselves to be pushed around by the more vocal and extreme who tend to define the party because they're in Washington and that's where all the press is and they get good headlines when they say things like that. Does campaign funding have anything to do with this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, campaign funding finances at the heart of a lot of the problems that we face. But you and I were talking about that earlier this morning, and I'll let the governor... I, yeah, it's just, it, it, there's one. a big problem. I, I do a lot of work uh, with states, state legislatures. The Center for the New Energy Economy at CSU was set up sort of with the premise that Congress wouldn't act in a big way. And so let's look at states and how we can move clean energy policy at the states. And that's, and, and you know, there are people that disagree with some of my positions on the environmental side because we're really trying to do state regulation of natural gas extraction in, you know, the most environmentally sound way. But I'm not out there holding a banner up that says ban fracking because it's part of the, it's part of what we're dealing with. So we're working at the state level, but we see even state legislatures impacted by outside money. Um, I think Arkansas is probably a very good example where outside money caused that legislature to become a far more conservative legislature this year and where a lot that was happening on the clean energy side actually was dead in the water because of who the legislators were that were elected. There were still some successes, and and, um, I'm partnered up with this group called Advanced Energy Economy, a group out of San Francisco, Graham Richard, CEO, is, is in the front row here. And, and so we're working together, and we actually had some successes in spite of that, but we didn't have the big success we would have had a, except for the legislature turning, and that turning had to do with outside money influence. Well, you know, there's also, on the, on the other side, just a little bit on this, um, these influence groups, it's both sides. So I'm on a group for setting sustainable standards for and the highest standards we can for fracking in the Marischal Shale, and it is partially funded. It's half funded by the Heinz Foundation, half funded by the industry. Point being, I mean, in best of all possible worlds, I would wish we didn't do any fracking. We're going to. Fracking has been part of our history. You can do it right, but it seems to me the most important thing to do is to set the highest possible standards that you can for what would constitute safe fracking since it's going to happen. And it's the environmental groups that are going nuts. And they are putting money in there. They're doing advertising. They're doing attacks on the EDF, which is one of the, uh, Fred Krupp is one of the, the members of this board. And they're coming after it. And you want to say, but listen, it's going to happen. What we're doing is trying to set the highest standards for it to do it environmentally safely. Let's try to work together on this. And then if we can attack it at the other end by conservation, by having better green energy, I'm all for that. But let's not say if we if it's not going to be perfect and, oh, my Lord, we have some of these uh, energy industries that are part of this, therefore it can't be any good. That's as mindless, you know, and, and they're putting money in and they're putting pressure on too. So it is outside influence that does affect so much of this decision-making, and uh, that's problematic today. Money really does play a huge, huge role. And what's the solution to that? Well, I think we ought to have campaign finance reform to start with, but uh, obviously that's a very difficult thing to do. I tried to get some uh, limits put on. Actually, all I wanted to do when I was governor at one point was try to get a a bill written that would require the the same time release of information as to who gave. And every time we tried to put something together, the attorney general would come back to me and say, you can't meet the constitutional test. I mean, you just... The right to association has been so broadly interpreted, particularly by this court recently, that... um, it's very going to be very, very hard unless citizens rise up and say, we want some changes. We did campaign finance in Colorado, and all it did was give more power to the outside money. Uh, as governor, you can only raise $1,000 per person or corporate giving. Labor unions have to participate through these things called small donor committees. So it really changed in a very significant way uh, what you could do in terms of financing your campaign. And uh, my opponent and I together were, this is going to sound small by California standards, but about $9 million raised and spent between us. But the outside money was probably about $18 million. A better example is in the United States Senate race, which was $25 million between the last Senate race we had in Colorado. Between the two candidates, the outside money was $45 million, almost double what the candidates raised and spent. Now, I agree with Governor Whitman. It's hard to change absent some something that's either constitutional or the court. So the thing that I'd say, if you want to ask what we do to change, I, I'm 
analogizing this issue around clean energy and climate to immigration, where we've seen some movement by a, a group inside of a political party that seemed to be pretty recalcitrant, pretty unmovable, intractable. And now we've seen some movement because they started losing some elections. And so we've really got to think about what demographics are there that care about climate, that care in a very significant way about what's happening and you know, and, and, and elevate the political intensity of the issue so that both parties pay attention to their need to compromise or not compromise, but come together with some uh, common ground solutions that really do address change. You, you, you've got these parties that are sort of in their corners, ready to come out boxing, not ready to come out with agreement. We've got to elevate the political intensity that really demands common ground solutions. I couldn't agree with that more because if you if you look at the history of, of massive change in this country, well, first of all, unfortunately, I think we're seeing backsliding on the immigration now from what I read today and what was said yesterday. But be that as it may, um, if you look at the history, let's just take integration in this country. It took decades, mm-hmm. and it took the public finally getting mad enough. I mean, if you think about it, real integration in the South was when Rosa Parks, not just because she was tired that day, had tired feet, that had nothing. She'd been an activist all along. And she just was fed up with being told she had to get up and give her seat to a white man, and so she sat in the bus. And that started the boycott, the Montgomery bus boycott. But it was decades after that that we finally got to the point where we actually had true integration in our schools and in our in our businesses, and, and it really has become part of a, the fabric. Well, we're still outliers, but it's become the fabric. So okay. you have to, when you talk to people, they say, well, we didn't get it done this time, so I'm going to give up. I mean, I, I give up. It's hopeless. You have to say no. The only people that can make the change are us. This is a democracy. If you want to know where the problem is, look in the mirror. We don't vote the way we should. We don't get in touch with our legislative le- leaders. Once we've elected anybody, we sort of say, okay, that's fine. I've done my bit. And we don't go after them when they do something that we don't like, and they don't, we don't go to them when they're doing the things we do like and say, you're doing a good job here to give them the support that they need to be able to continue, particularly if they're bucking the party organization, as it were. The difference in this case is scientists would say we don't have decades, that if we, right. if we wait decades, right. we will fry the planet and it'll be too late. Even more reason to keep the pressure on for doing that now. Let's talk about jobs. That Jobs is an area where many people see promise for, for clean technology. Governor Ritter, you know, talk about uh, the job creation, et cetera, that this is not a bad thing, that there's opportunity. This is really a lot of economic opportunity in cleaning up the energy economy. And that's, I mean, uh, our center is named Center for the New Energy Economy. Work with uh, the Advanced Energy Economy Institute out of San Francisco. There, there is this economic development opportunity here that's global. And if we don't take advantage of it, it's going to be to our detriment as a nation. We, you know, in Colorado, when I was running, said, listen, we think that you can use domestic energy sources that are clean. And so they respond to environmental challenges that actually uh, build the economy and where you can protect ratepayers. And so we called it the four E's. And this is this great framework for thinking about energy policy. So energy that's domestic, environmental issues are, are solved, economic development and equity Equity for ratepayers, so that we're not building out an energy system on the back of middle income or lower middle income or poor people. We saw job creation in Colorado directly resulting from policy levers around clean energy. I signed 57 bills. We became, you know, the number one state in the nation per capita for solar workers. We brought in a major wind turbine manufacturer, the largest in the world at the time, Vestas. And it's not like this is easy stuff. But we did see during the worst downturn since the Great Depression, we saw our clean tech and clean energy space grow. And so one of the other answers to how we solve this is make the business case for clean energy. And there's a lot of folks out there that are doing it. We're still trying to do it, but we think that there is a business case to be made. Critics would say that a lot of that happened because of federal stimulus dollars. President Obama went to Colorado to sign the Stimulus Act and that there's a lot of subsidy in those numbers you just cited. Well, I think the Stimulus Act had a lot in it, but we were already moving on that agenda, and a lot of our success had everything to do with the things we did apart from the Recovery Act. The Recovery Act brought in clean energy dollars, particularly on the weatherization side, the energy efficiency side, and state energy programs had a lot to spend, but it came and went, and when it was gone, it was gone. But um, we've been able to sustain this energy economy, a clean energy economy, even under harsh economic times, so I don't... I would say that the uh, Recovery Act helped. Uh, there was some stimulus effect to that. There's a bit of a lag effect. 
So there are people who were, you know, suspicious of it or questioning it. But states that are doing this, you look around the country, states are doing it apart from the Recovery Act. If they have a serious intent on clean energy policy, you can see the impact on the job numbers. And there's great economic modeling from land-grant universities across this country that demonstrate it. Bill Ritter is our former governor for Colorado, and we also have Christine Todd Whitman, former governor of New Jersey. Governor Whitman. Well, I, I absolutely agree that the green energy economy has enormous potential at all different levels. And one of those, and I know it's not everybody's idea of green energy, is nuclear. Uh, nuclear, there are four new power plants. Well, there are five, but one was one that had been previously licensed. But four totally new power plants being built today in this country. And they already, each one of them, two are in Georgia and two are in South Carolina. And they are up to 3,000 workers full-time full time during construction. But once they're built, there'll be five to 700 full-time permanent jobs there that pay about 35% more than a similar job in that area, whatever it is. And that's the whole pipeline. It's everything from sanitary engineers to nuclear engineers and mechanics and everybody. So it's a, there are lots of potential jobs in that, and it's the only form of base power that doesn't release any regulated pollutants or greenhouse gases while it's producing power. So it is something, I think, to be considered. And even if we don't bring on any new nuclear energy in, in this country, uh, there are four <laughs> reactors currently being built in China that are using the Westinghouse AP1000 technology, and those are providing some 19,000 jobs here in the United States. So, as you say, it can be worldwide. And when I look at some of the manufacturing potential we have to produce the various bits and pieces that go, whether it's with wind turbines or solar panels or nuclear reactors, we can do that here. And we have a, a great potential to do that. So we need to look at the whole, and, I, and Governor Ritter and I agree, we're talking about clean energy, clean, green energy that's affordable and reliable. That's, that's what we want in this country. And Congress has got to do something on an energy. But with nuclear waste, how can you call nuclear clean? Nuclear waste right now is, if you took all the nuclear waste that we have from the 104 reactors around the country that have been operating for over 50 years and put them in one place, they'd fit up one football field to the height of the goalposts. They are safely stored on site all around the country, unfortunately. And uh, that's another thing that Congress needs mm -hmm. to act on. Congress decided that there should be one national repository. They said it should be Yucca Mountain in Nevada. We have spent as taxpayers and as ratepayers, we have spent billions of dollars to get Yucca Mountain ready. And as long as Harry Reid is president of the Senate, it will never happen. So the president appointed a, another commission to look at it, and they've said, well, we ought to find a, a couple of sites then, and they're working on that. And there are actually communities have come forward and said, we'll take it. But the real thing there is that you have between 95 and 97% fissionable material, unused energy in those rods today. You can reduce that, as they have in France and Japan, through reprocessing to 3 to 5%. So you're dealing with a much smaller amount. Now, that's highly enriched plutonium at that point, but they have figured out how to, and I'm not a nuclear scientist, so I can't tell you how, ensure that that can never be used for weapons. And so, you know, we need to look at this. We, we shouldn't just close the door and say no way, no how. We need to look at it as we look at the whole issue of climate change and clean air. You remember the President's okay. State of the Union in 2011, mm -hmm. he talked about mm -hmm. trying to reduce, he was talking about reducing our emissions by 80% by, uh, or maybe having 80% of our energy be produced from clean energy, and he included natural gas and nuclear as a part of that by 2035. That was the goal, and then Fukushima happened 10 days later. So there's still, I think, a political problem. California, Southern California, with the San Onofrio plant is an example of where, you know, a plant is shut down. But I think, you know, you go back to this framework and say, can you do it domestically? Can you, does it create jobs? Can you solve environmental challenges and hold ratepayers, you know, harmless or at least, you know, protect them uh, and, and then it fits, you know, it fits within that construct. If, if, it, if, in fact, it fits within that construct, it could be and should be a part of a clean energy framework. The reality today, though, is that cheap natural gas is undercutting the price of nuclear, mm -hmm. of coal, of everything. In fact, John Rowe, the retired uh, CEO of Exelon, the country's largest nuclear operator, said, I don't think uh, new nuclear makes economic sense because gas is so cheap. It's really disrupting everything. So is that, but that may change. Oh, we've seen it before. It has changed before. We've had low natural gas prices, and then we've seen them spike up again. So it's more a question of saying you need all of the above. I wouldn't say that there's anything that we can rule out and say we absolutely cannot ever use it. 
I'd like to see us use less coal because we really don't have, we have low sulfur coal, we don't have clean coal, and we'll develop scrubbers someday that can really capture carbon, and we'll figure out how to deal with that, but we, ha- we aren't there. I'd like to see less dependence on coal, but you're not going to find something that is going to supplant 48% now of our energy overnight, and we're looking at a 38% increase in electricity demand by 2035, which is, you know, a, a 28% increase, excuse me. Um, that's a big amount for a utility, and uh, it is true that natural gas right now is the the flavor du jour, but I think we've got to be very careful not to try to say that that's going to solve all our problems because it's it's not. There's no one thing that will. I, well, I, natural gas has uh, replaced a lot of coal in this country, and it's been one of the more precipitous changes in the energy sector in the time, certainly, that we've regulated the energy industry since the beginning of the 20th century. So it's played that role, and to the extent it's taken coal off a line, that's a good thing we passed a bill that actually by mandate replaced uh, 1,000 megawatts of coal, a gigawatt of coal in Colorado with natural gas, but we also have a 30% renewable energy standard. And so, you know, there's an integration of of coal and gas that's a good thing. But I, I, you know, I think that we should think about this from an emissions perspective again, and my discussions around this, I'm really biased in favor of finding ways to produce energy that uh, reduce emissions over time in a serious way so that we can get to this 80% reduction. And I think there's probably advanced energy technology across the spectrum. So on the renewable side, on the grid management side, even on the carbon mm-hmm. capture and sequestration side, and the nuclear side that help us answer that. What we need what we need most of all is a national energy policy. It's a strategy that says, let's go after it around emissions using domestic energy sources, using American technology that we're producing at our labs, and, and, and really look at how we get to that 80% reduction, but have that be our goal and have it be a national goal that we all embrace. Speaking of a national energy policy, what grade would you give the Obama administration on clean energy and climate? Governor Ritter? Well, I'm, I'm actually doing all I can to help the president in a variety of ways around uh, clean energy. And, you know, when you say what grade would you give, I'm never I – don't, I don't like to give grades, actually, because I got graded as a governor and I always thought it was pretty unfair because <laughs> circumstances mean a lot. I mean, I think this president was handed the most serious economic situation, economic downturn, obviously, since President Roosevelt. I sat with him when I was governor and with the rest of the governors in the country, and I think almost all 50 were there. That's unusual get that many together. He wasn't president yet, but people sitting there telling him, here's the, you know, here are the economic straits my state's in. You have to do stimulus. So as an executive, you use up a lot of political capital doing something as significant as a stimulus package in your first month in office. He burned up a lot of his political capital. He's bound and determined to pass health care. He spent the next year really spending the rest of his political capital passing health care. You can question whether or not that was the right thing or not, but but he's made a lot of, I think, important strides. Agency authority has been used in a pretty aggressive way. There's been a variety of things, both at DOE, at EPA, at the United States Department of Agriculture, where they've done important things in trying to advance this agenda, but there's been largely a, an impasse in Congress, and that makes it difficult to say this president's done really well or done you know, poorly because he hasn't had a Congress that will work with him on it and because they've tried to do a variety of things with executive authority and some of that in the last part of his term, he did that without much political capital. Christine Todd Whitman, how would you uh, evaluate the Obama administration on energy and climate? I think it's been stutter starts. Um, it, he'll, he'll talk about it and <clears throat> I think it's part of the problem that he has in a lot of these issues overall is he'll put out an idea open out the idea of what he wants, but not an administration bill and not a a really specific framework to say, and this is how I want you to start to approach this. And that makes it very hard, particularly with as dysfunctional a Congress as we have, to get a lot done. And again, you you will hear him say something and then you don't hear anything more about it. And the president's got a lead. I agree. He's used up a lot of political capital. He did right off the start with stimulus, but then particularly with health care. And we can disagree or disagree on, on... whether he used that, whether that was capital it was worth using in the, in the way that he did. But um, I think that, that it's, been, it's been starting and stopping with EPA. You see them, they'll, they'll be told and pushed and they'll put out a reg and then all of a sudden they'll back off it. And, 
you always get sued. Any regulation that EPA puts out, you get sued. There's no question about that. But they, sometimes they don't even wait for, wait for that. Now, part of that is, in fairness, a reaction to the Congress that won't do anything. And they well, have Congress, tried to do more. In 2011, Congress took 191 votes to erode the authority of the EPA. Yeah, it's been amazing. How many votes did you ever have to erode your authority in 2000? Well, we had quite a few. We had quite a few, but not that like many. A lot. Not, not like not like that. There's yeah. no question about it. It became it. And, this and focal point. Congress has just become a real roadblock to progress in this area. But uh, I still think we. I wished we had seen more. Although I will say they put money into a good amount of money now into research and development from the Department of Energy on green technologies, on small modular reactors for nuclear. Or they're they're taking these initiatives. Uh, they're doing it in a in a smaller way than. than yeah, I would say like. people who are observers of federal spending would say ARPA E, so the research and development program inside the Department of Energy is one of the most successful things that sort of happened. Now, interestingly, this week there was a vote, I think, in the House to cut its budget, and so this is this problem we're dealing with. Um, but take the model of dealing with the automobile manufacturers for fuel economy standards. And that was really a high point of the administration and their work on. Uh, on emissions because they they work with the industry, got to a place where I think most people in the industry agreed that this was a way they could move forward. There's obviously a social benefit, but there was also, you know, the an economic benefit that the manufacturers would see over time. And they gave them enough time to sort of to, to um, phase this in. That's a good way, a good model for this administration to think about how to work at uh, these kinds of big problems and it, it had to do with working with industry and ultimately backing Congress into a corner to do it because the industry agreed to do it. Uh, Governor Whitman, uh, I'd like to just ask briefly about the EPA regulation of power plants. That's been something that's been in the news a lot, and the administration has been – is that – they've been on and off again on that one, too? Should that happen? Those regulations have been in the works for decades. Oh, I think they should. <laughs> I mean, there's just been no question in my mind that we need to – ensure that we are really enforcing the regulations and that they're, they're at the right place. I mean, there was just a study out yesterday on the links between autism and pollution, basically, uh, mercury and, and particulate matter, uh, diesel fuels particularly, although that, interestingly enough, they followed people for a long time. That's one area where we have taken steps. When, when I came in, we had a regulation pending from the Clinton administration to vastly reduce the amount of pollution from on-road diesel engines, and then we took on, as I took on as EPA administrator, a, the similar type redu- reduction of uh, emissions from non-road diesel engines, and we've reduced those by uh, over 95%. So that's an area where we have taken steps, mm-hmm. but it's also you're seeing the constant, you see more and more studies of the linkage, health linkages to bad air quality and people's health, and then and we don't, EPA has a model that they can run through for anybody showing you what the cost avoidance is of increasing a standard on premature deaths, asthma. If something's not, if you can call something it's not contagious, an epidemic, asthma is an epidemic in this country, particularly amongst children. I mean, th- there's no question that the data is there that we are hurting ourselves if we don't clean up our act in all different ways. And we need, therefore, to go where they are. The, the the utilities are doing a much better job than they did, but there's still a lot more that needs to be done, and we need to have the EPA in a position where it can regulate. But as Governor Ritter said, the Congress just is continuously trying to choke it off, and they're cutting budget again and again and again so that they don't have the, the wherewithal to be able to implement the regs that they have, much less promulgate the new ones and fight the court battles that inevitably follow. You're listening to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are Christine Todd Whitman, former New Jersey governor, and Bill Ritter, former governor of Colorado. We're going to invite your participation. We have a microphone over there. I invite you to come join us with one one-part question or comment. I'm here to help you keep it brief if you need some help. Uh, and before we do that, uh, while we get that going, um, I'm going to ask one other question. What is your position on the Keystone XL pipeline? It's expected that the Obama administration will approve it. Uh, the environmentalists have drawn a line in the sand saying it's it's draining a carbon bomb. Governor Ritter, uh, where are you on Keystone XL? I'm delighted in not having to take a position <laughs> because I'm in academics. I, listen, I, I, I think the administration um, is looking at this, and I suspect they may well do that. I, I can't tell you that I know that for any reason other than just sort of watching politics of this. Uh, listen, I think there are really big things we need to do as a country. 
really significant things. We need to transform our energy sector. We need to transform our utility sector. I think the Keystone Pipeline is, is sort of one issue, but I got to feel, and you know, the governor and I talked about this as well, like it's going to, uh, that oil is going to go somewhere. I actually visited the Keystone, uh, I, no, I visited the oil sands when I was governor. We have oil shale, not shale oil, oil shale in Colorado, and I wanted to kind of look at an open pit extraction operation to get unconventional oil. And it's it's really detrimental, right, to the boreal forest uh, around Fort McMurray in Canada. But I still think that it's probably going to happen. And the question is, uh, okay, if it happens, are we going to turn our attention to really the other big things in this country that we have to do to address what I think is one of the biggest issues of our times? I don't think that's the Keystone Pipeline. I think it's about totally transforming our energy sector and our utility sectors over time. Jim Hansen from NASA has said that if we burn the oil in the in the Alberta tar sands, it's game over for the climate. And that sounds like a suicide. It may happen, but it sounds like a suicidal mission. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of, uh, and I have a lot of respect for Jim, Jim Hansen, but I also know what it's like to govern and what it's like to be in a decision-making position where you're trying to think about how you move this agenda forward and what are the biggest things that need to be done. So I'm just saying I don't think it's game over from my perspective. There's other people out there that say, okay, you look at all the fossil fuel reserves in the world, 80% of them have to stay in the ground for us to reduce global emissions 80% by 2050. I think that may be another way to think about it, right, is uh, we can't look at all of the, the world's reserves and believe that over time we can expend those fully and still be able to reduce emissions at the level that we need to by 2050. So, so what we have to do, again, is think about this from an emissions perspective, but I think so much attention has been paid to the Keystone Pipeline that we've lost our focus on these other places that actually are dramatic, in my mind, of things we need to do and do now to transform our energy sector. Governor Whitman? Well, the best of all possible worlds, I wouldn't, I don't want to see it. I would hate, I hate cold tar. The extraction, it's dirty. There's no good way to do it. It's, it's bad. But I agree with the governor. It's going to happen. So if it's going to happen, then you say, all right, uh, what's the worst carbon footprint and the, or the least bad carbon footprint, and probably bringing it to the United States through the Keystone Pipeline, as long as that pipeline is, has been moved, as it has been several times, to avoid some of the most environmentally sensitive areas, is probably the best we can do. Uh, but it's something that I don't envy the president having to, having to address at all, because it's not the way we want to do it. And I think we've also got to start talking more and more about conservation and empowering people to figure out the ways that they can reduce their input, because people tend to think about just themselves, and they say, well, if I unplug my iPad after I've charged it, what big difference is that going to make? But you know what? If you do it, and your neighbor does it, and your son does it, and your uncle does it, all of a sudden you're having an impact. And it's like water and watersheds. We've got to get people thinking about cumulative impact and the actions that we can take individually that actually will have some right. effect. And it, that's one another place where government can have a role. And oil demand is down in this country. Americans yeah. are driving more efficient cars. They're driving less, carpooling, sharing more. So that's one good story on the demand side mm -hmm. is demand is down. Yeah. And energy and, demand is and down in part got. because of the downturn in the economy, but also Probably. because we're using less. Mm -hmm. We're finding ways to save money. Um, and, you know, I just talked to somebody on the phone this morning that talked about a major corporation saving in the hundreds of millions around energy efficiency, uh, using less energy over a several year period, but how there's a culture inside that company to use less and less and less, supported by advanced technology that's helped them out a lot, but uh, that's also a part of this that's picture. It's becoming more and more the standard as well. Let's have our first audience question for Governor Whitman and Governor Ritter. Welcome Hi. to Climate One. Governors, Greg, uh, my name's Peter Gisela. I have a short four-letter or four-sentence letter from EPA Director Whitman from December 2002 I want to read. And I'm going to read the question first and then at the end. Um, as former governors, how do you prioritize mandatory requirements versus voluntary governance with the hope of creating a more civil, sustainable society? Whitman, dear Mr. Giselle, thank you for your letter and the background material on the proposal for the creation of a national service program for Americans' youth. While I appreciate your strong interest in securing my assistance to promote your ideas, I see greater long-term value in encouraging young people through example to consider community service than in mandating that they do so. 
I hope you are able to inspire others with the enthusiasm to make a difference. Again, thank you for the opportunity to learn about this proposal. That was December of 2002. Again, the question is, and, as, and your question is, okay, as former to... governors, how do you prioritize mandatory requirements laws versus voluntary governance, which, with the hope of creating a more civil, sustainable um, society? I think they both have a role. Frankly, um, you have to mandate some things. Unfortunately, we've seen the track record of, of just hoping people will do the right thing isn't as uh, universal as we want, isn't as good as we want. Uh, I'd love to see it, but I don't think it'll happen completely. So you do have you do have to have some standards, and you do have to have some enforcement of those standards. Much better, though, and you get much better compliance. It happens much faster if you can get people to voluntarily step up and agree to do the right thing. And, and you can with incentives. The governor was just talking about companies. I'm on the board of some companies that have voluntarily set for themselves standards on reducing their energy, reducing their water consumption, reducing their carbon footprint. There's no regulatory demand that they do it, but they're finding that it is, in fact, beneficial to them. It helps their bottom line, and it is some way. it's a way that they can... Um, show that they are different from their competitors. So it gives them a competitive advantage, and they like being good corporate citizens. But you have to have both. I don't think you can walk away from the mandatory completely. I'd rather see more reliance on voluntary. I think it works better, and you don't end up in courts, and you don't fight as much, and don't spend as much money on it. But you have to have some of that mandatory there in order to get people to take that next step, frankly, and and be more willing to embrace the the voluntary. Bill Ritter? Yeah, this is this important point um, because there's a group of people uh, in the political spectrum and Tea Party conservatives will say, I'm really opposed to mandates. And, you know, our electricity sector is about 40% of our emissions in this country. And we decided in the early 1900s we would regulate this because we didn't want it to become a monopoly. We were worried about other kinds of things uh, where there was a common interest in not having a monopoly activity, and so we regulate it. And so states like Texas deregulate energy production, but they don't unregulate it, right? There's still a variety of really significant regulations in place. So somebody who says, well, I don't like a renewable energy standard because it's a mandate. Well, that's that's how we've uh, really handled our electricity sector since really uh, the advent of uh, significant electricity uh, consumption in this country. And so mandates or regulation restrictions is part of it. The second thing is we had a lot of naysayers when we went to 10% renewable energy standard in Colorado. Said it's going to be too expensive. There's not enough of it there. And what we found out was we could produce wind, particularly at the time, at the same level as gas or coal. It was cheaper than gas at the time, a little bit more expensive than coal. Um, so we doubled and went to a 20% standard. We put a rate cap in place. Said it can't go over this, this small rate increase but we're going to put wind. Wind is now cheaper than coal in Colorado, and we went to a 30% standard. And so there's a lot about creating a market for this where we've seen because of the market creation, the price curve come down. And that's, you know, it's you're not interrupting a free market because it doesn't function as a free market. You are, in fact, having some levers in there that are making some sense to sort of utilities to say, hey, we can do this, we can do it a little bit cheaper. And utilities are not themselves agents of change so somebody's going to have to do it, right? And it's legislators or policymakers who say, well, a mandate here is useful to sort of address this environmental issue and at the same time find ways to produce energy in a clean way. Let's have our audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Yes, uh, thank you for the program. I uh, Particularly um, thinking of climate change as a global concept, uh, particularly related to China, the debunking the myth of clean coal energy you know, producing so much uh, carbon in the air as well as mercury in the water. You know, in Japan, it's, you know, it's very difficult. It's the number one cause of the contamination of mercury uh, you know, by it, with the fish. What do you see as a collaborative effort in innovating solutions, educating uh, developing countries, and working on this as a, a global issue rather than just a domestic issue? We haven't spoken to that today. Well, it's hard to do, and we're not doing anything. Um, you know, from a policy point of view, it's very hard for the president to stand up and have any kind of credibility in it. The first G8 meeting of the environmental ministers that I went to in Trieste was the first time that they'd invited all of the developing countries there. And it was, the feeling was very palpable that they thought climate change was really an issue that the developed countries were using to keep them back keep their economic growth back because they said, look, you guys got to where you are economically with all this polluting. You just don't want us to get there. And it was real. I mean, they absolutely felt that. 
And the fact that we have not taken, we don't have, we're doing a lot of things, don't get me wrong, we are doing things that are reducing our carbon footprint, we have reduced it, we are seeing emissions come down, we're doing good things, but they're not part of an overall policy. So when others look at us, they say, well, how can you tell us what to do when you're not doing it? And of course, we've seen it recently in a couple other things that we've been doing and trying to tell others not to do. So it makes it more difficult. I think we have to. We have to work as much as we can on uh, technology transfer with developing countries, not just China, but India, which is growing at the same rate as well. I mean, those are the economies that are producing and going to produce on per capita basis China already, India soon to more than we are on a per capita basis of carbon. So we've got to work with them. But it would be helpful if we had some kind of a, a national standard that said, yes, we really are serious about this. I think that's so right. I, I spoke and um, I was in Denmark as governor of Colorado and talked about the things we've done on a clean energy basis. And you can tell that people in Europe are paying attention to Washington, D.C., paying very little attention to what states are doing. There's 220 million Americans who live in a state with a renewable energy standard. But they are not paying attention to that. They're paying attention to the fact that the Congress will not act on this. And so that's, first of all, how Europe sort of views this. But I've been to China a fair amount. I'm on the board of the Energy Foundation. We have a China's program that's really trying to work on a variety of issues in China that have to do with their emissions and with pollution and on the transportation side, the building side, the utility side, and really have some sense, I think, about how difficult that is. China last year put 50 gigawatts of new coal on uh, on its energy sector. So 50 gigawatts, let's say, that'd be 10 500-megawatt plants. That's almost a new coal plant a month. There was a time where they were building a new coal plant a week. Now, China's got to do that in part to continue the economic expansion at the level that they need to do, at the level that they believe they need to do. And so so they've got some countervailing pressure. Um, and we just need to, I think, first of all, Governor's exactly right, we have to lead by example. We have to show that there's an energy strategy you can have that really is based around reducing your emissions and continuing to be able to grow your economy but transforming your energy sector. And second, deal um, in a diplomatic way with other emerging economies to say, we're doing it, we're serious about it, we need you to get on board, and we'll find ways in the international community to make that possible. Unless we do the first, it's so much more difficult, and I would say virtually impossible to do the second. Welcome to Climate One. Let's have our next audience question. Yeah, thank you. Um, you addressed uh, con- uh, conservation a little bit, and we all heard like uh, the greenest uh, kilowatt hour is the one that we don't use. So I wanted to uh, get uh, to ask a question about sort of supply and demand. And uh, when you are governors, uh, do you have examples where you actually reduce the demand, like let's say uh, improve the green building standards in your state, or looked at uh, smart cities, or like transit-oriented uh, planning, or even like biking, uh, I know like um, you, uh, uh, Governor Ritter, like um, do that. So I'm curious to hear some examples of reducing the demand side rather than uh, um, creating green supplies that uh, uh, sort of replace the brown supply side. No, you you know about the biking because I fell off of a bike and broke my ribs and my sternum and my back. Well, as governor, when you do that, you actually wind up on CNN if you have a bike accident when you're governor. But um, so a lot of states, and we did this in Colorado, have uh, what are called um, energy efficiency resource standards that actually uh, set in place a way to incentivize utilities, investor-owned utilities particularly, to get their consumers to consume less. Um, our big investor-owned utility is XL Energy. They've been a great partner in this. Again, if you look at all the Americans that live in a state with an energy efficiency resource standard, 240 million Americans would be the fifth largest country in the world if it was just the country, if you just took that part of the country that have energy efficiency resource standards. So that's one way. Other states have gone through uh, decoupling to try and um, change the incentives for the way utilities produce power and, and charge for power. Um, there are a variety of things happening there. I think uh, governors are also leading by example. We signed a few different um, executive orders that were called the greening of government. So it was transitioning fleet, you know, to uh, either use less energy or use a different kind of energy. Um, on the energy efficiency side, uh, we did performance contracting with municipalities, universities, schools, and hospitals where you bring in a big ESCO, an energy services company, and they do a performance contract with that governmental entity and say, we're going we're to provide you this level of savings. We'll take a small part out of this, 
It'll all be our part for doing the contract, but in the end, governmental entity, you will use less energy and you'll pay less than you would with the contract plus your, your reduced cost of, of energy and the paying for the power. So those are just some examples, but I think this is, uh, this is something that actually has appeal on both sides of the aisle and there's a variety of ways we've been able to move this agenda, uh, using state governors and governments. Well, we did early on in, in my administration in the early 94, 95, when we deregulated uh, the utility industry, we were one of the earliest states to put in a standard for green energy. And to also, we made sure that we were providing incentives for people to find ways to conserve. Um, it, it is great when governors have accidents because I had mine on a bike as well, and it was one of the more <laughs> satisfying moments, though, because all I did was get seven stitches here, and then I chipped a bone in my finger, and they asked me about it on the press, and I, at a press conference. I said, well, no offense to you, but I did this, and I chipped this finger. <laughs> so it was very, very satisfying. Showing it was up very satisfying. Middle, middle finger. One of, the things that, one of the things that we did was um, also I take a, I bike across the state every, every summer, both to highlight tourism and to highlight the fact that you could bike to places safely. We worked uh, with our, with our, and it's the leading by example, we made sure that we encouraged people to be able to bike to work to, at, at the state government to give them a place where they could change, a place where they could put their bikes. It's great to say bike to work, but if you're a woman, you can't just get off your bike and take a quick shower and you're ready to go. It takes a little bit more than that. So we tried to uh, ensure that the various uh, departments of government were sensitive to that and would allow people to have this opportunity. did a lot of, of rail-to-trail uh, things to provide more paths, more bike paths for people so that they could get from one town to another using their bicycle rather than having to go in a car. So there are a lot of things like that that, yeah. that various governors do and are doing all the time. And in New Jersey, we are second only to California in the amount of solar power that we have. In the Who knew? Let's have our uh, next question for Christine Todd Whitman and Bill Ritter at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Hi there. I have two questions. The first is around your fiscal planning for these unexpected devastations. You know, Superstorm Sandy cost over $100 billion dollars. Right, so how do you plan for these unexpected catastrophes? And my second question is around hydraulic fracturing. And while this is somewhat new and we don't know the ultimate impact on human health in the environment, we know that it's severe, and 38 states are currently doing that. I understand it's being regulated at the state level, but what kind of conversations are being had at the federal level? So first, financial planning for bad days. Governor Ritter? Well, every state has in their budget um, disaster planning, and it may be called something different state to state, but the real money comes from the federal government, quite frankly. I mean, you can can do a lot to try and support the the disaster response, but state budgets are for, for something like, you know, even the wildfires, I won't speak to Superstorm Sandy, there's just no way your state budget is going to touch the real fiscal costs associated with those kinds of disasters. So that's why states have to, in turn, go to the federal government and really ask the federal government to enter and do all they can uh, with respect to to federal emergency management. So managing the crisis and then in the after response to the crisis, trying to provide assistance to people who are somehow devastated by it. Christine Todd Whitman. Well, the other thing you could do, I mean, besides the fact you put a budget aside, you also get to know, and it's one thing you're told as a new governor, get to know your emergency response people really well and find out what their needs are. And you look at what the tradition, what, what's happened in the past, and you say, what more do you need? What tools do we need? Where do we need to make the investment to try to mitigate the damage here? I mean, we have some areas, some local towns not too far from where I am that would flood every single time there's a heavy, heavy rain. So we worked with the Army Corps of Engineers to put in some dikes to make sure that we were trying to, to mitigate that. And so you, you put aside money. You have an emergency response budget, just a budget to deal whether it's snowstorms or fires or floods. Right. You have a certain amount. You try to anticipate the best you can, but you're never, ever going to have enough to do it all 90% of the time. You make sure your emergency response people are set to be able to respond quickly in an emergency. They have the tools, the communication tools, um, and everything else that they need to be able to do their job. And you then set up your plan so you know exactly what you have to do because in any one of these crises, the first 
responder, the primary responder, is the locality where it is. Then it moves to the state, and only then does the state ask the federal government to come in. And so you have to have, I can remember when we knew there were big things coming, we'd have all the paperwork done for me to sign instantaneously if I needed to declare it a disaster in order to be able to access the federal aid. So you try to make sure that you make these things move quickly, as smoothly as possible. Um, on your second question, uh, I think probably we're, we're out of time. We're, we're out of time. I okay, want to just sorry. close. We can get to uh, perhaps afterwards. Um, I want to close briefly by asking you uh, about 2016. In the tw- 2012 presidential election cycle, there were no questions during presidential debates about climate change. There was climate silence. Looking ahead to 2016, there are several governors that are potential candidates. Jeb Bush, Chris Christie, uh, others perhaps, Secretary Clinton, who do you think of the candidates would be really uh, enlightened on climate and energy? Bill Ritter? I don't, I don't know that uh, I'd have to hear them talk about it, but I think um, I'm a Democrat, and I think the Democratic Party is going to demand that there be a conversation about this. There will be a conversation about it in the primary. I suspect one of the things they'll require is that conversation continue all the way through the general. I think there are a lot of people very disappointed that it wasn't really highlighted during the campaign. It's been highlighted since by President Obama in a variety of ways. But I think the Democratic Party in the primary process are going to demand that there's a conversation about climate change. Christine Todd Whitman? I hope you're right. I doubt it will happen on the Republican side um, as far as demand, unless we stand up and say this is an issue that's important to us. I mean, the only thing that moves people is when the public says, my vote's going to depend on how you answer these questions. I couldn't possibly pick who is the most informed on this issue today. Um, they come at it from different places, and, and they have different levels of knowledge and, and commitment to it. But if we start to say, this is important, I'm going to base my vote on how you respond to these questions, then you know what? They're going to start to listen, and they're going to start to get more informed, and they're going to start to take positions, and then we can judge. We've come to the end of our time. I'd just like to close by saying this has been something of an out-of-body experience sitting here with a Republican and a Democrat agreeing so much. Uh, it's a little strange. Happy that it happened. But uh, uh, Bill Ritter was Democratic governor of Colorado from 2007 and 2011. He's currently director of the Center for a New Energy Economy. And Christine Todd Whitman was governor of New Jersey and was in the cabinet of President George W. Bush. Thank them for coming to Climate One of the Commonwealth. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. We should take the Commonwealth.